This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. This will be our last one for this calendar year, and then we'll come back in January. But so glad that you can join us this morning. If you are a first-time listener here and you've tuned in to 88.7 FM, for the next hour we will take people's questions. Maybe it's a text of Scripture they're studying they want clarification on or a personal challenge in life, family, or ministry. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will open the scriptures together and see what he says. Again, locally, the number is 843-525-1859, or you can text us here directly into the studio, and that address is TBL, it stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. I say text, that's email, but TBL at net. And if you do call, we always give, of course, preference to live callers, uh, some people will call us, at, again, the 843 exchange, it's 525-1859, and they don't want to go on the air live, and they're just more comfortable dictating their question. We're happy to receive it that way as well. So with all that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor Candace from Indianapolis, Indiana writes, I'm listening to your Revelation series and thoroughly enjoying the education. I've been sharing with family and friends as well. I'm currently listening to the great day of the Lord. It's the sermon you gave between the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. I'm around the 33 minute, or 33rd minute, and you're highlighting the differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 states, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is the rapture of the church. Then you reference Daniel 12 about the resurrection following Christ's second coming. This is where I'm confused and am requesting clarification. Why are the Old Testament saints still in the grave? Why did they have to wait to be resurrected until the second coming? Wouldn't the believers who are alive and asleep receive glorified bodies at the rapture? Did you mean to say the tribulation saints, or am I misunderstanding something? Is this because the church age starts at Pentecost, so only the church believers are raptured, and the believers who died before Pentecost missed the marriage supper of the Lamb and will not be resurrected until the second coming? That doesn't make much sense to me, but it's all I can discern. 1 Thessalonians 4 regarding the millennial reign is confusing to me as well. Will we all have natural bodies again or just those who are alive when Christ returns? Are the rest of us like the angels in that we do not marry or procreate? Do only those with natural bodies at the time of the second coming marry and have children and families in a world that is as the Lord intended it before sin entered the world? I'm sorry for all the questions, but I appreciate whatever time you have to answer. Well, uh, Candace from Indianapolis, it's a, you have a lot of good questions here. And I think if you will listen all the way through the Revelation series, 
especially when we come to the 19th chapter where we deal directly with the second coming. It will even become plainer to you. But again, just to clarify here, there is definitely, when we speak of the second coming program, it really comes in two phases. First, the catching up, where Christ comes for his church, and then the second coming, as we often refer to it, when he comes back with his church. So first, he he comes for his church. Every believer believes in the rapture that we'll all be caught up. The debate is, how does it unfold? I think what we see plainly in Scripture is first he comes for his church. He takes us to heaven. Uh, the rapture is imminent. People who say they believe in an imminent return of Christ, they believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Unless, of course, they don't believe that there's any millennial reign of the Messiah, the next event is the second coming, he takes us all to heaven, and that's it. Uh, you have to spiritualize and write off a lot of Scripture to come to that conclusion. But for those who believe that God will fulfill his promises to Israel, that he will literally rule and reign for a thousand years, uh, and they say they believe in an imminent return, that means nothing has to happen prophetically for Christ to come and catch up his church. So the rapture, he comes for his church, he takes us to heaven. It's not a prophetically driven event. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled since the church was instituted on the day of Pentecost for Christ to come back for us. Whereas the second coming, he's not coming for his church, he's coming with his church. We're following behind him on on white stallions, and he brings us to the earth. His feet will literally touch the Mount of Olives. It's a prophecy-driven event. There's all kinds of prophecy that need to be fulfilled before it happens, before the tribulation, during the tribulation, and then at the literal second coming of Christ. So with that said, I think some of your confusion lies, when will Old Testament saints be resurrected? Well, let me turn to Daniel chapter 12, one of the passages I referenced in that sermon. Now, I haven't gone back to listen to my sermon, and I don't know what I said in 33 minutes, but I'll take your word for it. Uh, Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. This is Michael, the archangel. There's only one archangel mentioned in Scripture, and it's Michael. And then he says, and again, I, I think the context here is important. He's speaking about the sons of your people. The only way that you can take that is in reference to the people of Israel. He's dealing in focus here with the Jewish people, those folks that Daniel is akin to. He's a part of the same nation. And then he says there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, again, the Jewish people, everyone who is found written in the book, talking about the book of life, true Jewish believers will be rescued. So he's speaking of this coming time, this uh, awful time in human history that has never happened, a time that Jesus said will come upon the whole world as he addresses the seven churches of the Revelation. It's predicted as early as the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the, the fourth chapter. He says, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. So he's talking about the latter days. That is a phrase that Moses and the other writers of the Old Testament use to describe that time frame, not for the first coming of the Messiah, but the second coming of the Messiah. 
And so there's coming a time in the latter days before the second coming, when he comes back with his church to the earth, uh, that there will be a time of incredible distress, and its function is to bring the Jewish people to repentance, to genuine faith. By the way, the Olivet Discourse, it's a discourse, it's a sermon that took place in the Mount of Olives. Uh, The Lord Jesus refers to this. Let me read to it from Matthew's account in Matthew's Gospel. It's found in Matthew 24 and 25. And again, uh, this whole uh, scenario is in reference to the Jewish people. He's on the Mount of Olives. That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. He has Peter, James, John, and Andrew there. They're asking him some questions as they admire from the Mount of Olives, the temple, which, you know, you can see perfectly. It's at eye level if you're towards the top of it. The Kidron Valley between the two and the Garden of Gethsemane at the bottom. And when we go to Israel, God willing, in May, and Israel will be fully open, and we expect it to be. They're just very cautious with this new aspect of the virus and trying to protect their nation. But with that said, we will stand on the Mount of Olives and you'll be able to see what the disciples would have seen. Now today, you don't, of course, see the Jewish temple. You see uh, the Dome of the Rock. With that said, he speaks of Israel during this time and all the things that are going to happen, an event that will take place on the Temple Mount that Daniel references, that Jesus quotes And uh, then he says, when this event, the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist goes into the temple and makes himself out to be God, he said, if you are living in Judea, flee to the mountains. He's not talking about if you live in Dallas or Chicago or New York, because he's speaking about the Jewish people. Uh, Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things in his house and so on and so forth. Um, Pray that your flight might not be on a Sabbath. And And then he says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And then he adds, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He's reiterating what Daniel the prophet has said. Daniel the prophet spoke of the abomination of desolation. Jesus refers to him not as a historian, but as a prophet. There are people who like to mock the book of Daniel. They say there are so many precise prophecies in it had to have been written after the fact. No, it was written beforehand. He's not a historian. He's a prophet. And the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed that he was indeed a prophet. But Daniel says here, there'll be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation. Jesus tells us the exact same truth. He speaks of many who sleep and the dust of the ground who will awake. Again, he is speaking about what will happen at the end of this time of distress. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. At the end of this tribulation period, he is going to raise up these Old Testament saints. Now, your question is a good one. You know, why at the end of the tribulation, why shouldn't they be raised with the church? Well, I think among other reasons, while God doesn't say, here's the reason, but if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, God wants to make a clear distinction between Israel and the church. And sadly, beginning in the fourth century, and it accelerated uh, in the centuries that would follow largely through Roman Catholicism and later through some of the Protestant reformers who came out of Catholicism— They began to teach replacement theology, that the church is replaced. 
It's called supersessionism. That's the theological term. That is, the church has superseded Israel, and God is done with the people of Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so I think, among other things, God is distinguishing the church from Israel. In fact, the time of the resurrection is distinct. And again, he's dealing here with the kind of resurrection, not necessarily all the timing of it, because in one verse, he speaks not only of those who will come to everlasting life, uh, but others who will come to disgrace and everlasting contempt, much like Jesus does in in John chapter 5. Because clearly, when again, you look at Scripture, you discover that the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the lost, based on Revelation 20, is separated by a thousand years. So, again, Christ comes back, he catches up the church. We go up to heaven in the twinkling of an eye. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies are transformed. The tribulation begins to unfold. One of the major functions of the tribulation is to bring Israel to faith. They are going to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah during this seven-year period, such that when they look at him whom they have pierced, they'll mourn over him. Their hearts will be broken knowing their rejection of him for nearly 2,000 years. Um, At that second coming, Old Testament saints will be resurrected, and those people who survived the tribulation, Jew and Gentile alike, will enter into the tribulation in their natural bodies. Now, it's interesting because they are the people who are able to procreate. We don't have children when we are in resurrected bodies. Procreation is over. In one sense, we're married to the Messiah himself. And so that imagery of a close relationship with the Lord in its fullest sense without a sin nature will be fully uh, experienced during uh, at when we are in a resurrection body. But people who are alive, Jewish people who survived the tribulation, um, who are alive at the second coming, along with Gentiles, they will enter into the uh, millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural bodies. They will have children and grandchildren. Life will be extended. If a man lives only to be 100 years, he's considered cursed. Now, just because they have children doesn't mean that their children are automatically believers any more than they are in this day. And not everyone, even with Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth, will fall under his lordship. That's why he has to rule with a rod of iron. It will be total peace and control like the world has never seen. But at the end of the thousand years when Satan is released, who is he going to tempt? Because the Bible speaks of Satan being released. He can't obviously tempt someone who's in a resurrected body, i.e. church saints, i.e. Old Testament saints who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. So who can he attempt? Only those who are in their natural bodies who have not received Jesus as Lord. And so when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations. So not just Jewish people, but various nations. Because remember, during the tribulation period, folks from every tribe, people, and tongue are reached for Christ. And then the end will come, Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. So we're going to see a complete fulfillment of the Great Commission during the time of the tribulation. A lot of those folks are going to be beheaded. That's why Jesus said again, unless this time had been cut short, no one would live. In either case, um, he will deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. These are 
the unbelievers who are the offspring of believers who enter the tribulation. So again, I think when you get to the 19th chapter, um, this will become clearer to you. You either spiritualize the Bible, like um, so many amillennials do, so many of those who say they are the Reformed faith, and they they look at Revelation 4 through 18 as just all historical. It's already taken place. It's not literally going to happen. Well, listen, all the prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled. Why we would think differently for the second coming would be a gross misinterpretation of Scripture. This is going to literally happen, and to underscore the distinction between the church and Israel, God has them raised at different times. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, John from Richmond Hill, Georgia writes, how did Paul receive his wisdom? Did God dictate or reveal the word to him? Was he just the right man for the right job? And because he was the right man for the job, he followed with prayer and study and then just got it right? Well, good question. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we need to think of him on a number of different levels because initially, how does he receive the gospel? He, he doesn't receive it from man. He makes that very, very clear. He said, I didn't receive it from man, for I would have you to know, reading Galatians chapter 1, and this is a phrase he'll use several times in his epistles when he wants to underscore a truth that he's about to say. I would have you to know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, Paul didn't receive the gospel from traditional sources. He goes on to further clarify, for I neither received it from man. And how did you receive the gospel? Everyone listening to me today received it in some sense through a man. Romans 10, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can you call upon him in whom you have not heard, and how will you hear without a preacher? Now, might be a preacher who was involved in the translation of a Bible, and you read it, but typically people aren't converted by picking up a, a Bible, say, in a, in a, a hotel, a Gideon's Bible, where they're converted. I'm not saying they can't be. It's a wonderful resource for believers who forgot their Bible to pick it up, but unless they have been evangelized and taught along the way, usually like the Ethiopian eunuch, someone has to explain it to us. So he said, neither did I receive it from man, like most of us did, nor was I taught it. In other words, I didn't get it through some traditional formal education, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So when, did Paul, when was Paul converted? Well, he received the gospel directly from the Lord. He, in the middle of a day, there's a bright light. It overshadows his sun. It is so bright. He falls to the ground. And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And the Lord gives him the gospel. He blinds him for several days. Now, we can debate whether or not at that moment he was converted or not. But we cannot debate whether or not Paul received the gospel from men or whether he received it from direct revelation. He received it from direct revelation on the Damascus Road. So that's his conversion, his justification. In terms of his sanctification, like any other apostle, the way he receives divine wisdom is he has to study it. Um, Peter was an apostle. In fact, I just quoted this verse a few weeks ago. Uh, We were uh, studying a a passage uh, from 1 Peter, and Peter said some difficult things, and 
Peter said, well, Paul said some difficult things. He, he made this statement um, in regard to the patience of our Lord is salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given you, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. What does that tell me? It tells me Peter studied Paul. Why? Because Paul wrote scripture. He wrote scripture. And so it was worthy of study because it was the word of God. And just as no doubt, Paul read Peter and any other writings in the New Testament that he was able to read before he died. Obviously, he never read the book of Revelation because it was written long after he died. In Acts 6, we see the apostles studying Scripture. The first book of the New Testament had not yet been written. And so when there's a conflict in the early church and they need some folks to make sure the needs of widows are taken care of, they weren't saying we're above this because we're apostles. This is just not a priority for us, so select up from among yourselves seven men full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom and Put them at the task. Why? Because we are going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. And that's precisely what they did. They were learning wisdom. And so when you see Paul, for instance, in the book of Acts, going to various places, one of the first places he would go to when he went to a town was the Jewish synagogue. Why? Because there were some Jews who would be open to the truth of the gospel, Um, some God-fearers, some proselytes, Gentile converts who would be there. And the gospel was to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so, for instance, he's in Thessalonica, and we read in Acts 17, he was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Where is he giving this evidence from? Well, for three Sabbaths, the verse before is 17.2 of Acts, for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He's just opening the Bible. So Paul received wisdom from the Scriptures as well. He had to study it for his own sanctification. In Acts 18, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So it's true not only um, for Paul's sanctification, it's true in your sanctification. Your mind is to be renewed, and that happens through a study of Scripture. Now, in reference to the writing of Scripture, which your question also encompasses, there have been different views uh, that folks have taken, um, but one primary view that the church is virtually held dogmatically and consistently for 2,000 years. There's a few people who have taught what's called the dictation theory. And by the way, I have a course. It's called Bibliology, and I think it's in section three of the course. I go through how was inspiration unfolded. All Scripture is theos nutos. It is God-breathed. It is the very breath of God. So it's not like there were writings and God breathed into the writings and said, now they're inspired. No, what they wrote came from the breath of God, so to speak. They were men moved along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now, they weren't passive like a secretary or a stenographer in a courtroom where, they, well, okay, Lord, I got that. What's the next phrase? And, and you write that down. Uh, that's how the Muslims view the Quran was given. It was given, dictated from Gabriel, they say, to Muhammad, um, 
that's certainly not how the Bible was written. Now, there are a few places where God literally dictated what he wanted to be written down. Then the Lord spoke all these words, Exodus 20, and there you find the Ten Commandments. But concerning dictation, that's not the means that the rest of the Scripture was given. You say, how do you know, Pastor? Again, these men were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And God wired people differently. And as you read the Bible, there's various literary styles. You read Jeremiah, who gave us the book of Lamentations, and it has a very mournful tone to it. You read Isaiah, and there's a lot of exalted poetry in it. Uh, You read Luke, who's a medical doctor, and he has some of the most complex Greek words in all the New Testament, maybe only to be paralleled by the writer to the Hebrews, And then you have the simple, grammatical, yet profound expressions written by John, say, in the Gospel of John. So it's a human book. It's written by real humans using their literary abilities, their backgrounds, but they're moved along by the Holy Spirit, so there's not a single error. If dictation were true, then the style of all the books should be uniform, but they are certainly not. So... These men were inspired by God. And I might say, where, where is this question coming from? Richmond Hill. I might say to John, John, this is like a critical question you are asking. Because either every single word is inspired as Christ taught or it's not. So we don't believe in partial inspiration, that just parts of the Bible were inspired. And that's a very popular view today. They do not espouse what's called verbal plenary inspiration. Verba meaning word plenaris from the Latin meaning, full meaning, every single word is inspired. And that's what Jesus taught right down to the tense of a verb. He gave an argument for his deity on the tense of a verb, not I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham. He said the smallest jot and tittle was inspired in the text of Holy Scripture. And so this is an important issue, and if you really want to study it in depth, you might take my course on bibliology. It's free. It's not for the uh, passive and the lazy. It's 500 pages of notes. But you will learn one, for instance, 10 views on inspiration. Uh, In our last Bible line, Gabby from Australia asked a question, and it was a good question, and it concerned uh, um, a so-called alleged contradiction in the Bible. There are no contradictions in the Bible. So in one section of that bibliology course, I go through the major passages that people say, here is a clear, blatant contradiction. And when you let Scripture interpret Scripture, you look at each one contextually, you discover, no, there are no contradictions. The Word of God is without error. And I dismantle those arguments, not me uniquely, because they have been dismantled for 2,000 years. So anyway, I hope that helps. And let me just make an advertisement for Search the Scriptures. We have what we call the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's uh, 36 hours of coursework. It's taught on a master's level. You will learn on a level, apart from any, you know, language integration. There's no assumption that you know Hebrew or Greek. But you will be taught on a master's level these subjects, just as if you were in a seminary. And you will learn in depth these major realms of theology that are really, really important. And again, it's at searchthescriptures.org. You can call them if you have trouble downloading the note-taking outlines, etc. All right, very good. Richard from Wittensville, Massachusetts writes, I have a question about atonement. 
I understand that Roman Catholics don't believe in penal substitutionary atonement, but I don't understand what type of atonement they do believe. Could you explain that? Also, would you say that it is necessary for someone to believe the penal substitutionary view of atonement in order to be a Christian? I find it hard in my position to say someone isn't saved because they don't hold to that specific view of the atonement, although I believe it is the only correct view. Thank you. Well, Richard, you're absolutely right. It is the only correct view. It's the view that Scripture plainly teaches. And so then the question becomes, what is penal substitution? The word penal is a word that simply refers to punishment, substitution, uh, the act of a person taking the place of another. So when we speak of penal substitution, it's the act of a person taking the punishment for someone else's offense. And this is what is clearly taught in Scripture. Now, let me just parenthetically say, do I think for a moment that someone has to know the words penal substitution to be a Christian? And the answer, of course, is no, any more than they have to know that verbal plenary inspiration a theological phrase I just used a few moments ago to describe the nature of Scripture, that someone has to know those words. If you ask my 10-year-old granddaughter, Audrey Kate, uh, do you believe that Christ died in your place for your sin, for the offense that you committed against God so that you could be forgiven? She would say yes. So what does that tell me? She believes in penal substitution. If I ask my granddaughter, um, you know, Lois, Lois, do you believe that every single word in the Bible is inspired without error? She would say, of course I believe that, granddaddy. Then she believes in a, a verbal plenary inspiration of Holy Scripture. So you don't necessarily have to know the terms to embrace their meaning. The terms, like many terms in the Christian faith, are given to kind of summarize a biblical doctrine, like the term Trinity, not found anywhere in Scripture, but it is plainly taught in Scripture. But the idea of substitution, 1 Peter 2, 24, I opened my Bible there, it says, "...and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his stripes, by his wounds, you were healed, by his death on the cross." Likewise, in 1 Peter 3, and verse 18, since we were just in this epistle a moment ago, "...for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. And so, again, it's the just, the innocent, that's the Lord for us, the guilty. And again, this whole concept of substitution is taught is right in the beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve try to cover their sin. They institute fig leaf religion, man trying to cover his shame by what he does whereas God allows the first death in all the universe to take place. He kills some animals. He gives them skins, plural, to clothe themselves, and he is instituting a principle that sin brings death. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. You see the same principle uh, established when Abel comes to bring an offering to God. He brings a blood offering. How does he do that? Well, he does it by faith. Hebrews 11 says, faith is always built on the word of God. And God had revealed through his parents and possibly by direct revelation to Abel. But in either case, he had a clear word from God that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. 
And so his animal sacrifice is much like what our baptism is. It was symbolic. It had no ability to propitiate God. The blood of bulls and goats are never able to take away sin, but they are illustrative of what the Messiah was going to do. So when we speak of penal substitution, we're simply saying it's the act of a person taking the punishment for someone else's offenses. Now, there have been other views on the atonement. Some have said, well, the atonement was uh, an example. So there's a guy who lived around 1,000 or so A.D., Peter Abelard, and uh, he taught what we call the exemplary view of the atonement. And he said, well, Christ, you know, gave an inspiring view of sacrificial love, and so that is an example that we are to follow. He didn't say and teach that Christ's death was a literal payment to satisfy the wrath of God. It was just an example to follow. And so there have been these false views of the atonement. Without going into all the details, because I'm going to give another commercial, I have a course. It's called Soteriology, and it's offered in the Institute of Biblical Studies. And there we go through like seven or eight major views that have been taught. Only one is correct, but seven or eight major views that have been taught on the atonement. And the Roman Catholic Church takes what we call the satisfaction view. But with with all that said... They do not believe that the death of the Lord Jesus on Golgotha, when he shouted, it is finished, completely and eternally paid for your sin such that you can have assurance that when you die, you will go to heaven. So whatever view of the atonement they may hold, even if you don't understand what their technical terminology is, it's not the view that Jesus made a complete and total payment for our sin such that he can say, it is finished, to tell us die, paid in full, such that when you put your faith where God puts your sin, you're immediately justified and eternally forgiven. They don't teach that. And so, you know, again, terms always need to be defined. If you ask a Roman Catholic theologue, do you believe in salvation by grace through faith? They'd say yes. But again, the terms are redefined. So through the sacramental system, like the Lord's table and so forth, you are given a measure of grace that allows you to do works and through the grace given to you, administered uh, so that you can do works, that helps you to earn your salvation. And they couple that with James's text, faith without works is dead. And they confuse justification before men with justification before God. And that's why in Roman Catholicism, no one technically can have assurance of salvation. It's called the sin of presumption to say you know for sure that when you die, you are going to heaven. But the Bible says you can have that assurance. They deny that. And again, you say, well, that's just old Roman Catholics fighting Luther. No, that was their response, certainly in the Council of Trent that met from 1542 to 1568. But the Council of Trent was reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and then as recently as the a cardinal, uh, the cardinals met the College of Cardinals in 2010, reaffirming uh, the Council of Trent once again. It's a denial of penal substitutionary atonement, that Jesus completely, totally paid for our sin so that we can have assurance of salvation. That's heretical. That's a departure from historical Christianity. Now, there are certainly Roman Catholics who listened, say, to Billy Graham when he was all over the television, There are Roman Catholics who are listening 
to this broadcast. There are Roman Catholics who listen to search the scriptures. I know because I am contacted by some of them, especially in the New England area, and they're converted not through the Roman Catholic Church, though they attend there weekly and they don't understand why they need to leave, but they are converted through the preaching of the Word of God. And just as there are people who attend evangelical churches that are as lost as can be. So again, it comes down to a personal relationship, a personal decision for Christ. So do you have to understand Anselm's Anselm's view on the atonement? No. Do you have to understand, you know, Finney's view on the atonement? No. But do you need to understand that Jesus died, the just for the unjust, in my place, making a full and complete payment to satisfy the wrath of God, to propitiate God, to appease his anger through a substitute, and he proved his ability when he raised him from the dead? Yes, that's the gospel that we are to preach, Christ and him crucified. Good question. Very good. Sarah from Bluffton writes, A few years ago, I was walking in a very hot region and ended up getting massive heat blisters on my feet that hurt so much I could barely walk for a couple of days. Someone who was with me at the time then prayed over my feet, and the pain immediately went away and never returned. I know God can do miracles whenever He pleases, but I'm at conflict with myself with how to wrap my mind around a healing like this. The girl who prayed was someone I knew was not walking close with God based on things I witnessed in her life. A close mentor of mine also brought up the 2 Corinthians 12.12 passage talking about that kind of stuff. So, how do I biblically reconcile what happened to me based on what I've read in Scripture and learned through pastors? Well, this is a great question, Sarah. Now, your friend who raises 2 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, the apostle is defending uh, his call as an apostle because some people had come into the Corinthian church and said, Paul's not a real apostle. He's just kind of a Johnny-come-lately, and uh, he's not a true apostle of God. In fact, some of them claim to be apostles, and Paul dismantles uh, their whole argument. He reminds them that the devil himself disguises himself as an angel of light. He says in uh, the 11th chapter, right before this, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. And unfortunately, we live in a, a day when people lack discernment. Someone asked me a question recently and about a pastor that I made note of, and they said, well, we were in that church, and da-da-da-da-da. I said, yeah, well, he denied the miracles in the Bible. He said Genesis 1 through 11 was not historical. It was all parables to teach us spiritual truth, that Noah was not a real individual who built a real huge boat, that God literally brought a worldwide flood. He said, no, Jonah was not a literal person who was in a great fish and uh, on and on and on. And I said, you know, but he was such a nice guy. I said, yeah, I knew him too. He was a really nice guy. I liked him, but he was lost. You see, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. Now, I hope he repented and got saved because after he retired, he went systematically to a number of Baptist churches in Beaufort County and helped to destroy them and made them cooperative Baptists. But you see, today people have no discernment because they're undertaught, and that's why we're exhorted to teach sound doctrines to keep the enemy out of the church so people have some discernment. And so Paul 
says the signs of a true apostle. So he's dismissing their charge that he was a false apostle. He said they're actually the false apostle, but I'm a true apostle. One, I've seen the risen Lord. He argued that in 1 Corinthians 9. To have been selected to be an apostle, among other things, you had to literally physically see the resurrected Lord, and he did. Not to mention, if that were true, if you had seen him and he had selected you, then the signs of a true apostle would be performed among you. And that's what he said. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So listen, if a person can do these signs, wonders, and miracles that is unique to an apostle, then the apostle's argument totally comes unraveled. They had to be done by an apostle or an apostolic delegate. Since there are no apostles, there's no miracles done like this or through a delegate. Now, I didn't say there are no miracles done. I just said there are no miracles done by an apostle, and there's a huge distinction. God can still do miracles if he so chooses. Now, were you miraculously healed? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, you had blisters all over your feet. Maybe just an answer to prayer, and I'm sure if you were as miserable that that was in your heart as well. Certainly, the person who prayed over you, if they were out of fellowship with God, well, if someone regards and clings to iniquity in their heart, the Lord does not hear, but you know, maybe this person for superficial reasons, for show reasons, for guilt reasons, prayed over you. I don't know. I, I wasn't there, and I can't read the person's human heart. But certainly if it was the desire of your heart to be healed, maybe God just supernaturally healed you. Now, we wouldn't typically call that a miracle, but it would be certainly an expression of God's grace and mercy. And it's important that when we get sick, we don't just seek the doctors. King Asa sought the physicians, didn't seek the Lord, and God was displeased. King Hezekiah got sick, he sought the Lord, and then God used the medical means to heal him. We go to the doctor and just give me the prescription. Oh, I got the prescription, all will be well, and we don't even pray over taking the prescription. And so we kind of ignore God's role in physical healing. So God can still do miracles today. No one has ever denied that. Does God do miracles through apostles today? And the answer is no. Why? Because there are no apostles. So even these fakes and frauds, you know, you got a Benny Hinn. His uh, nephew, Costa Hinn, was wondrously converted after he worked for Benny for 10 years. And he realized what an evil movement he had been a part of. You should go online and listen to some of his messages, because he really exposes this guy and how they grew legs and all these other scams and plants that they put in the auditorium and all to make money, all to make money. So there's always fakes and frauds, and there is power that can be exemplified through Satan himself. And so there's coming a time when Satan is going to have even more freedom than he has today And we read of this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, because when the Antichrist is on the earth, he will be ruling as he is literally demonically possessed. He is empowered by Satan. He'll do signs, wonders, and miracles, false miracles, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. And since the spirit of Antichrist will be in full exhibit during the time of the Great Tribulation, 
there'll be a number of other people. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So you don't put your confidence in the miracle. You know, if uh, someone was paralyzed and they came in a wheelchair to your church this Sunday and the pastor prayed over him and this person who'd been paralyzed for 30 years all of a sudden is walking and leaping and praising God, you shouldn't immediately assume that that's a man of God who did this. You have to analyze the doctrine that someone teaches. So again, the scripture is our final authority. We do not put experience over the scriptures. Experience must be subservient to the scriptures. Our final authority is the word of God itself. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, James from Savannah says, my wife and I have three children and I've been married for 10 years. We're having a conversation about continuing to have children versus sterilization or birth control. One of us would like to continue having children, and the other feels that more children would be too difficult and expensive, thus putting undue stress on the family. How should a Christian couple approach this? How should the husband give himself up for his wife, and how should the wife honor and respect the husband when there is a disagreement? Also, is there biblical opposition on or support to sterilization for the purposes of birth control? Well, you know, uh, the whole idea that we would even speak of sterilization uh, is a modern concept. I say modern in that there was really no birth control methodologies until the 1960s. Uh, And, of course, the first birth control means began to uh, spread and they caught and they were very popular because we became more and more secular as a culture, not just the American culture, but the worldwide culture. And so children were no longer viewed as a blessing from God. And yet that's how they're described in Scripture. You know, there was a time when they built neighborhoods and uh, with sidewalks and parks. And why? Because children were viewed as a blessing. And all of that began to change. And as time has unfolded, instead of being a child-blessed culture, we're a child-hating culture. And instead of children being viewed as the gift of the Lord, the fruit of the womb is his reward, such that he can say, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. We don't see it that way anymore. Uh, We don't see children as a blessing. People don't typically say, well, God, you've blessed me with so much finances and resources. Will you just stop? You've given me too much. Or God, my health is just really great. What a blessing to be healthy. But God, will you just stop blessing me with good health? No, we don't think that way. But somehow when it comes to children, because we don't really see them as a blessing because the culture has taught us that they're an inconvenience. Oh, they're an inconvenience to my career. And so we have a new administration that is trying to pass a bill that is going to provide child care in early education, as early as K-3, but it doesn't look like the good senator from Kentucky is going to agree with it. But they want to basically get your children away from you so that someone else can be raising them during the day because they're not really a blessing. They may be nice, but they're not a real blessing. In fact, they're somewhat of an inconvenience because if I can't work and pursue my career, say, as a woman, 
that I'm really not a person of significance because, I mean, just staying home, you know, good grief, what a minimal job. I mean, how backwards can you get? And this is the way our culture thinks. And so birth control comes in in the 1960s, and with it, of course, comes a new sexual revolution. Why did that happen? Because of Romans 1. We were no longer acknowledging God as God and giving thanks, so God gave them over to sensuality, and the whole sexual revolution began to unfold. This is a nation that is adrift from God, and so now someone could have the pleasure without the responsibility and that they could either control the conception or if conception happened, they could easily abort the baby. So if you say you're really pro-life, then it's wrong. And I would just say to you, if you know, you've got two people who are batting heads, assuming one of you, and I don't know who's on first here, whether it's you or your wife or, you know, who's like so opposed to, you know, these little children coming into the world assuming they are believers, then you should certainly uh, do everything in your power to do a search of Scripture. My wife and I have written a little thing that we give to couples in premarital counseling and what God says about children and what does he say about birth control. So you should do a study on that because, again, remember, everything you believe as a couple is based on something either made it up or you dreamed it up or someone told you it or you read it in a book, but just believing it doesn't make it right. And so every thought needs to be brought in conformity to the Word of God. We need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so the question is, what does God say about children? And that's where we need to begin. And that will solve a lot of your disagreements. So if you guys would humble yourself as a couple and get on your knees and say, Lord, you know, there's real disagreement here in our home. And one of us wants to have more children and the other does not. And we want to really get this right because someday we're going to meet you. And we don't want to meet you where the where you, we learned, well, your plan for us was to have five children. We only had one. No, you want to do the will of God. And listen, um, Everything that you own, someone else is going to own 50 years from now, more than likely, unless Jesus comes back first. But in the end, in fact, you know, someone was <laughs> explaining to me they were cleaning out their house and how much work it was. And I said, you got that right. I know when my parents had lived in the same house for 50 years and we had to, my dad was dead and we had to move my mom to a smaller place. It was more manageable. We had five floors, or actually four floors, three stories in a full basement. And we're talking about a basement that's bigger than my house. And, you know, stuff for 50 years, and it was so much work. And I think the Lord's going to handle this really sweetly. He's just going to burn the whole planet. He's just going to burn it all. It's all going to be gone in a flash, and he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. And so when you're gone, you're not going to bring anything with you. But if you raise children for Christ, you will have a godly heritage. And that's a great gift from God. So get on the same page. I would say if it's the wife, you know, you could say, uh, I mean, if it's the husband who has a problem with more children, you could say as a wife, well, look, I'm not going to compromise my body and take birth control as you want me to, but if this is the way you feel and you're not willing to study Scripture and find out what God says where we can be in agreement, 
then you do what you want to do to prevent children. But I'm not going to violate my conscience and do it. And so, um, again, uh, it's a good question, but you need to search the scriptures on this because God has spoken and he has not stuttered. All right, we've got three minutes left. I think we can get this question in. Jacqueline from Bloomingdale, Georgia, would like to know, the ex, have you explained the jealousy curse in Numbers 5? This is the law of jealousy. When a wife being under the authority of her husband goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all the law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but the woman shall bear her guilt. So this is an interesting passage. People have taken it in different ways. Uh, There's some dust that's given, and she drinks it in the water, and if she's guilty, her abdomen swells. And there was a a good brother, I mean, um, Dahan, he was a medical doctor, and uh, he's been dead since, I think, the late 60s. But then he had some sons who followed in his ministry, and he did a ministry called Radio Bible Class. But he, as a medical doctor, said, well, this was some herb. It's unknown to us, and Moses knew it, and the body would have a physical reaction if there was guilt. I, I don't think that's in view. I think what we see here is something that, that is of a supernatural nature. Because this is at a time when God is dealing directly in a theocracy with the people of Israel. There are ways that God dealt with the Jewish people that he does not deal with the church today. You know, if someone was uh, guilty of adultery, they were stoned to death. God doesn't do that today. And so there were certain supernatural dimensions in which God separated his people Now, under the new covenant, he distinguishes us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I think what you see here is a supernatural expression of what God did in order to keep pure his people because he needed a people from whom the Messiah would come, and he didn't want that people to be polluted. That's the short answer. But anyway, we are out of time, but we're so glad that you were able to join us today. And God willing, uh, we will be back the first Tuesday in January with our next Bible line. This will be broadcast at WAGP.net for your viewing at your leisure. Tell your friends, get them to uh, listen, to submit their questions. We're happy to take as many. It takes us a while to answer them because there's so many, but we do our best by God's grace. Have a merry, merry Christmas. And if you don't have a place to go, Community Bible Church this Friday night has a Christmas Eve service at 5.30. And Christmas Sunday, of course, is Sunday the 26th. And we have two services at 9.15 and 11, along with Gray's South Carolina and Graniteville campuses there as well. God bless you.